The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hey there, geeks. Stop sifting through those back issue vids and wipe the newsprint off your fingertips because it's time for the latest episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Very slowly pulling off the scotch tape that accidentally stuck to the cover of Darkhawk 14, I'm Adam. And falling out of the speed force, winding up in Lord knows where, I'm Michael. And joining us today is a man whose superpowers include feats of great controversy and the ability to identify leaps of logic in a single tweet. The pop culture mastermind behind West Week Ever and countless nerdy podcast appearances. Welcome, William Bruce West. Hey, how's it going? We are excellent. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, we love seeing your tweets. Has there been a favorite moment so far? Is there a segment or something that sticks out to you as you listen? Well, I love all the extras. Like, I've been blessed enough to have received the Valentine's Day care package, as (laughs) well as I won the Lego minifigures of the Batman 66 villains. So I like that it's it's almost like an interactive experience at this point. Yeah, that's that's what we're going for. You're telling me my wife didn't win them for me? That's That's what I'm hearing here? Oh, what a shame. (laughs) <laughs> you got to think about it. Wizard was always about the extras, right? As time went on, started with posters, eventually getting trading cards. So I think that's pretty awesome that we could revive that tradition. But William, for people who don't know you, because you're actually our first guest with an online presence, who's not just a friend from our lives. So <laughs> what can you tell people about what you do on the internet? Okay, well, I have a, we'll call it a vanity project because it's my name. It's WilliamBruceWest.com, <laughs> and it's a site I've been running now since ooh, 2003, and it was just something I created when I graduated from college just to pass the time while I was doing temp jobs and stuff like that, and it evolved over time. So, like, lately, the past few years, I've done West Week Ever, which is a play on VH1's Best Week Ever. And we just look back at the week in pop culture. I post that every Friday. Um, and I I do a lot of other stuff. I'm really into thrifting, um, like thrift stores, yard sales, that kind of thing. Is, so is I that have why a, you and Adam are friends? Is that how that happened? Because he lost Definitely yes. a connection. <laughs> oh, yes. So I have a a segment called Thrift Justice where I write about a lot of the stuff that I find on the thrift circuit, and I pretty much just live on social media, like Twitter. I I often tell people, like, don't text me, don't email me. You should just tweet me because that's (laughs) where you're – you're more likely to get a response. Oh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And there's, there's always some good stuff to be found there. I feel like if there was a soundtrack to your Twitter feed, it would just be like a CNC music factory loop. Things that make you go, hmm, hmm, you know? <laughs> Cause you just, you start thinking like, yeah, that's a good point, William. Oh, yeah, I get that. Okay. But let's get into this now. Cause another big part 
part of your posts and the things that you're always mentioning to the world is comic books. In particular, I always love hearing the updates about like your stacks of unread comics that you're still trying <laughs> to get through. Oh, so bad. Like uh, when people ask me, especially like say like Amazing Spider-Man, I am about five years behind, but I have every issue. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know when I'm ever going to read them, but I'm like, I'm before Superior Spider-Man and Spider-Island and all that. Oh, but I keep wow. telling myself, like, one day I'm going to read them. Like, maybe I'll be retired, but I'm going to read them. <laughs> Sounds like Michael with his 12 long boxes in his basement. Don't get me started. I, I've gotten to this point now where I think it's, it's created like an OCD, where now I'm sorting them by certain priorities of, I'll definitely read these soon. I might yep. get to these eventually. This is probably probably going to be a long way away and then just goes right in the box and maybe my children will read them someday <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah and i'm a big continuity guy so there's a lot of stuff where i'm just like well this is pre-flashpoint it doesn't matter anymore <laughs> do i need to read it that I, kind I, of I, thing i've been there i know that feeling a lot i'm like oh i have all this like hickman fantastic four stuff i'm like am i going there or am i like ah it doesn't matter anymore or i go away I right, know, I, right oh i know the feeling oh absolutely <laughs> But William, we really want to find out where did the obsession begin. So I say, let's get into your origin story. So yeah, William, tell us a little bit about how a young man discovers comics in your neck of the woods. What did you latch on to first? Oh boy, this is almost like my Forrest Gump story. <laughs> I've really kind of bounced my way through comics. Let's see, I used to have to go to Alabama with my grandmother for the summer, and I always hated going because I don't like being away from home, and Alabama's not that awesome, and it was hot, and there were bugs, but but I remember, like, my mom and aunts would always bribe me to, like, go down with her. Like, oh, we'll buy you a toy. We'll buy you this. We'll buy you that. And we always went by, like, train. And there's nothing to do on Amtrak except for, like, read. So I remember... We went to Walden Books and we got, and I should know this by now because it's bit like, it's such an important issue, but I got an issue of Action Comics and it was interesting to me because it had the Tim Drake Robin in it and I didn't know like difference between Tim Drake, Dick Grayson, all that at the time. Like I just knew he was cool and he had a cool suit that was like the animated series, but, um, it was Action Comics with Robin and Superman and they were fighting vampires Whoa. and it, it was the strangest thing to me because a lot of people don't realize Superman is vulnerable to vampires like everybody thinks it's just kryptonite but apparently it's kryptonite vampires and other magic so like <laughs> I read that on the train going down to Alabama and it was just such a weird experience to me because before that I had just read like the Hardy Boys and like those I was really, I was really into the Hardy Boys. <laughs> so, really? so, oh yeah, oh yeah. I I spent years because this is pre 
Amazon. So I spent years like trying to track down the Hardy Boys Detective Handbook. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do this myself. But like, um, so yeah, I read it on the train going down there. And then by the time we got there, I was just like, I need more of this. These things are awesome. And like, that was the time where you could find comics like anywhere. So we went to like Kroger and went to like, Piggly Wiggly and all these other southern staples and I was just grabbing comics and I didn't really understand the monthly model so like I thought that oh if I grabbed like an action comics that I found it would continue the story of this vampire thing but it like crossed over into another book and it was really confusing to me so I was just like grabbing whatever I could get and it was a good period of time because it was like Spider-Man's 30th anniversary so you got like those holograms covers that they did for all four Spider-Man right. books and I'm a sucker for holograms so I was grabbing those and just grabbing any Batman and detective I could find and I didn't know the difference between companies so that Alabama trip I was still just reading DC stuff and one of the porters on the train was like, oh, you're into comics? And I'm like, I am now. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you should read Marvel comics. And I was like, but I don't like Marvel comics. I like DC comics. Because <laughs> I didn't know anything about Marvel at that point. This I do remember. My very first X-Men comic was Uncanny X-Men number 296 in the middle of Executioner's Song. And that was the most confusing. <laughs> I, like, I've said that X-Men hasn't really had a great jumping on point in years, and that certainly wasn't it, but I think that was easier <laughs> to get into than some of the more recent stuff. But I grabbed that, and then I grabbed, like, the next issue, which was, like, Professor X could walk, and that was really weird to me. And then I was just all in at that point. So, like, throughout high school... Any money I could get would go to comics. And that was when comics were like a dollar fifty, a dollar ninety-five. So I was reading like X-Men, I was reading Batman, and then came Gen 13. Woo! And I'm ashamed to say that like I've spent more money on Gen 13 comics than <laughs> I probably admit like i really bought into the speculation of like oh gen 13 half i'll pay 25 dollars for that <laughs> like, like i would never do that today i'm mad right now that i gotta pay 40 dollars to get batman 89 somewhere but back then i'd like oh christmas money i'll buy that 40 dollar gen 13 cover <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and we'll talk about this when Jet 13 finally enters our timeline, but that was the book I remember being the instant speculator book. Like, the, when they released all 13 covers, when that number one came out, and suddenly they were up on the wall behind the counter for 20 bucks a piece, at least. Oh, yeah. It had 13 covers for number one. And then, like, there was such, like, electric behind that series, because then you had, like, Sarah on The Real World, who was, like, yep. the editor at Wildstorm, and it just, like, is the perfect storm of just, like, Wildstorm fandom. So I was really into that. I remember, like, big things like the X-Trader in X-Men. I was, like, big in those days. And then um, I read them all throughout college. I was a big... I'm probably, like, the last remaining Ultimate Marvel, like, super fan, because I felt that it was, like, getting in on the ground floor of 
a new universe. It was, right. it, to me, it was like, this is what it felt like in the 60s. Because they did daring stuff in the beginning, and then eventually it turned into like, how can we just remix this classic story? And then it wasn't as interesting anymore. But in the beginning, they were kind of making some like bold statements. So I was huge into that. And then eventually, I found myself working in comics. I was a brand manager at Diamond for about two Two years yeah. after college, I handled small press books E through R. So <laughs> if you think of like, yeah, it was it was the worst division because if anybody knows the previews catalog, it's basically a phone book. Like there's Marvel, DC, Image, and now there's Boom and Dynamite, Nighty W. But like those are the premier vendors, and then there's the rest of the book. I handled the rest of the book, but at the time I had IDW and I had Oni. Those were my biggest. It was at the time when Scott. Pilgrim came out, so Oni was a big deal, and it was right when IDW was getting G.I. Joe from Devil's Due, and they had Ghostbusters. Like, IDW was basically, like, working with my toy box from when I was a kid, because they had every license of, like, what I grew up loving. So, I did that for, like I said, like, two years, and then, like, I would weave in and out of comics, I would, because there's only so much money to go around, so it would turn into I'll collect toys for a few years or I'll collect CDs for a few years and then back to comics. So I'm pretty much I'm back on board. Um, I have two kids, a four year old and a one year old. And since the four year old was born, I just haven't really found a lot of time. But I still go to the shop weekly like it's church. But I don't <laughs> read the books like I buy them. I have a very expensive habit. <laughs> but I don't read the books because I just can't find the time. So that's kind of like ultimately like that's the Cliff Notes version of my comic origin story. That is fantastic. And I got to tell you, I, on your Hardy Boys deal, I was the same way just, you know, prior to really jumping heavy into comics. And my friend who really introduced me to the hobby, we decided to start our own detective agency using that Hardy Boys handbook. And we were like, we were working out. like, well, we got to be in shape, and then we got to also sharpen our minds like Batman does. And we would read it, and we'd have like a weekly meeting where we would plan out. It's like, now we just got to get some clients. Right. (laughs) The worst part of that handbook, because people, if they're not into the Hardy Boys, they don't realize there's like, what, the first 53 volumes, which are like the vintage stuff, which is when the handbook came out. And then later on, there were like the case files and all that stuff that they did in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So I got in on the case files, but went back and read the vintage stuff. So, like, the handbook doesn't hold up because it's all this, like, antiquated technology of, like, make sure you have a transistor radio. Have a great fingerprinting kit. <laughs> That's right. You know, maybe someday we'll just have to get together. We'll produce an updated Hardy Boys handbook, you know, and do what we can to help the kids of today. I like it. I like I'm it. I'm actually on board for that idea. It's pretty good. I like Step that, one, Google. but William this is great that is an awesome story and just imagining your first comic being Superman and Robin fighting vampires I mean the possibilities are endless after that the question I have was how old were you 
I was 12. That, make, that lines up with like the Tim Drake Robin. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's like, even still, at 12 years old, vampires are still scary. Like, my first comic, my first Batman one was a Detective Comics, and like, a teenage boy gets killed in it. Looking back at it now, I'm like, my parents didn't look at this book, and it's kind of like a scary thing. Like, wow, there were certain things that were scary, but it was okay back then for some reason. Nowadays, it's like, I give my daughter, like, here's DuckTales. Read this. It's just funny to think about that, you know? Well, that's a good point, because like, I didn't know any better about vampires because I grew up, like, even though I was allowed to get, like, the comics and stuff, I was very sheltered. And, like, I didn't watch horror and all that, so I didn't really have a frame of reference for the vampires. And, like, my mom was very, very religious. So it got to the point of, like, there were certain books, like, if I left X-Men lying around, if she didn't like the the cover or if it looked demonic, it might disappear. (laughs) So, So I didn't, let's just say I didn't get many more books with them fighting vampires <laughs> and there's there's like certain co- corners of the universes i never got into like ghost rider like no 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 that wasn't coming into the house but a blue guy with metal wings i could kind of justify that <laughs> you know all right well now i think it's time we jump into the wave riders Wayback machine <laughs> March of 1992. So this month, we have a couple real doozies of movies. And I say that because all of these movies, I really like. And I'm going to start with, on March 5th, was a classic movie called The Lawnmower Man, which, if you've ever seen this movie, is not really about mowing lawns. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is not the main focus, except for a few moments at the beginning. But do you know that the Lawnmower Man actually has a comic book connection? It's very vague, but I've heard of that before. It's actually, it's not even like in terms of an adaptation, because it was based only in name on a Stephen King short story. In right. fact, he had them take his name off of the film because they were forwarding it as Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man. He's like, you didn't use any of my story. I, I do not want to be associated with this. I actually have a, a VHS tape. I have the first version, which says Stephen King's Lawnmower Man. Then I have the second version, which is the director's cut, which his name is omitted. But in the film, especially in the director's cut, Job, the character who becomes, you know, he's the titular Lawnmower Man, he reads Cyboman comics and Cyboman is his hero and there's this escaped chimp from a lab who's been experimented on and he's got this like robocop suit on and he thinks he's Cyboman. there's this whole thing that got cut out of the theatrical cut that has Cyboman and the really? comics and the chimp at the beginning so if you're a comic book fan you'd get a real kick out of that I rewatched this movie maybe about two years ago. I don't even know why. I think I was just like bored and like flipping through Netflix. It's like, oh, you know what? I haven't watched this movie in a very long time. Let me tune into it. It's not a great movie, but it has a great cast. And it has, like, the bones of of what could have been a great movie. I just think it was a bit ahead of its time based on, like, the technology they talked about and basically talking about the Internet, more or less, in this movie and so on and so forth. 
and it just was a few years ahead of its time. But it could have been really a great movie, but it has this like cheesiness to it that falls yeah. flat. I mean, at the very least, it's got the cutting edge computer graphics. I mean, I think oh, that's yeah. what most people went to go see, for, if yeah. nothing else. But William, as someone who did not have much experience with horror, have you ever connected with the Lawnmower Man? I have not. I am a terrible movie person. Like, I'm great with TV because I've watched everything in syndication, but most movies, especially the ones that, like, hold meaning to most people, I have never seen. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. So our next movie is a favorite of mine and my whole family. My wife does many, many impersonations of Marissa Tomei from My Cousin Vinny, which was on March 13th of 1992. And I love this movie, you know, for Joe Pesci. And uh, my parents actually met Ralph Macchio's parents at a dinner party somewhere in Long Island right after this movie came out. And they were like, oh, our, our son is a huge fan of yours. And they go, oh, really? Uh, you know, they told this whole story about how I loved the Karate Kid growing up and yada, yada, yada. And about a month later, I got an, an autographed picture of Ralph Macchio in what? the mail. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, it was pretty hilarious because it was right around the time when this movie came out. And people were like, wait a minute. That's the Karate Kid in that movie. And, that, and they didn't realize it at first because he looks, you know, because he's more grown up, looks a little bit different. But, yeah, that's how I have a big connection to this movie. I love that story. See, look at this, Michael. You're coming back. You got the stories this time. <laughs> Finally, I have one. I'm a, I'm if it's up. East Coast, you got it. And the next movie is another real classic. And for a lot, a lot of reasons. This movie is... Basic Instinct, which came out on March 20th. And Basic Instinct, as many people know, was the breakout role for Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas, almost a recreating of his fame from this movie after a couple of quiet years. But this was a wildly controversial movie and a hugely popular film for more or less the adult content in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like th- this is a movie I've actually never seen. Like, the, the 90s really? thrillers. Yeah, I've only seen a handful of them. Because oh, I just man. knew it for pop culture. It, it was so parodied and, and referenced that and it's actually the same with my cousin Vinny. I need to see this movie. It is so what? beloved, and I've never seen it. Same here. I've oh, seen, okay. I know it from pop culture, and I've seen parts of it, but I've never seen all of My Cousin Vinny. I know Basic Instinct from pop culture, never seen it. Oh, man. I mean, if you had to pick one of the two, you should really, both of you guys, see My Cousin Vinny. But obviously not with your children around, because there's <laughs> a lot of cursing in it. And now, the last movie that we have on our list here is another one that is a huge personal favorite of mine, White men can't jump on march 22nd now do you guys know who was in this movie yes you got your woody harrelson you got your wesley snipes yeah the famous duo from money train (laughs) (laughs) this is and this is pre-money train right now there's another character another cast member in this movie who has my favorite line of any movie ever not Rosie Perez or Rosie Perez? Not Rosie Perez. Okay. I forget his name in real life, but he was on a show called A Different World, and he was Dwayne Wayne on that show. Ah, Kadeem Hardison. 
That's right. And he has a line when they're playing one of their basketball games where they win and they win a bunch of money. And he goes, we go in Sizzler. We go in Sizzler. We go in Sizzler. Did he have the glasses on? Oh, yeah. He had glasses on. He had the hat. Oh, it was the whole thing. It's fantastic. (laughs) And there are so many times in my life since I saw this movie, which is rated R, and I saw it as a kid, probably about a year after it came out on VHS. My parents were watching it, and I kind of was like watching it from afar. And I still, to this day, quote that line whenever like it's like payday, and, I, and my wife's like, "What do you want to do? What do you, you want to go to dinner?" I'm like, "We go in Sizzler, <laughs> Sizzler," and I do that forever. So it's my favorite line of all time from that movie. That is awesome. I'm still waiting for the third film in the. Snipes and the Harrelson trilogy. I feel like we got to get them back together in this modern The Wesley day. and Woody trilogy? Yeah, long overdue. All right, now we're going to hop into some music here. For a lot of people, this is a band that defined a lot of the 90s. And this was their debut album from a band called No Doubt on March 17th. Do you guys have any thoughts on No Doubt's debut album? Well, aren't they a lot different at this point? Because this is pre-Gwyn. It's her brother who then leaves to become a Simpsons animator. Yeah, like so they were like kind of like hardcore ska in this yeah. early days. And it's interesting, too, because I grew up in Orange County, and they're an Orange County band. And when I worked at Disneyland, there was guys like, oh, yeah, I, I grew up with those guys, and no doubt it was a major deal when Gwen took over and all of that. But yeah, so it's interesting how that evolved so differently. Right, I gotta yeah, go right. animate The Simpsons, but I'm gonna put them in that episode, Homer Palooza, and they'll be <laughs> in the crowd. The next album, also on March 17th, was the album from White Zombie, La Sexisto Devil Music Volume 1. <laughs> Oh, white zombie. Man, who would have imagined? You know, you got the front man of this band, and then years later, he's directing Halloween films. He's really just made a name for himself in cinema outside of music now. I mean, how many people maybe know him more for his movies than his music? I mean, I could probably name maybe one or two white zombie songs that I know of because they were so popular. But yeah, I would say of the last 20 years, you'd probably say, oh, I know him for the movies that he's done, you know, the House of a Thousand Corpses and all those other movies. And yeah, you're right. He probably, he's one of those people that, that transcended his music career into film. All right. So the next one, oh boy, this is a... <laughs> This classic. On March 23rd, Billy Ray Cyrus releases Achy Breaky Heart. And this was an album where that title song was everywhere. It was one of those first real country songs that transcended country and was a pop song. And no matter what station you are in, no matter what part of the country, you heard this song several times a day and there was no escaping it for quite a long time. Yeah, it felt like it was a song where it was instantly a joke as well as a hit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, everybody knew it, but everybody was already sick of it. And then even Weird Al did a parody of the song, Achy Breaky Song, where he's just talking about, like, don't play that song, that Achy Breaky Song. <laughs> it was just about how much he can't stand it. And so I just think it's it's so interesting that Bill Ray Cyrus, he only ever had really that one, at least, crossover hit. And then what happens? His daughter becomes this huge pop sensation and TV star. And then now he's back, because he's all that, like, 
Old Town Road song, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's just interesting, like, how much do we really respect his uh, songwriting or his performing ability? He's just kind of there. Yeah, he is just kind of there, exactly. So the next one, on March 24th, En Vogue released Funky Divas. Now, I don't know if this is the album that I can think of that I remember all the songs from as a kid or this is their album yeah this was this was the big one right yeah yeah this is actually probably if I remember correctly the first cassette album that I bought that wasn't New Kids on the Block but that I got my own money and I said I need to own this album because I was hearing their singles on the radio and I mean like Free Your Mind that is not like an R&B song that is like a hardcore rock song it is like a rock song I yeah. love it like that that's such a great song I mean just, just everything you know never gonna get it my love and all that stuff like there's there's so many great songs on that album and I listen to that cassette over and over and over again I think my mom had the CD of this one i think we had like just gotten a cd player my parents and we're like oh we're gonna get this cool cd player it felt like something you'd seen out of the wedding singer kind of a joke like, oh i got this beautiful cd player that plays one disc and, and this was one of the first albums they bought with it and i do remember having this album in, in our house my mom playing it all the time all right but william you need to drop some television trivia on us and Vogue television. Where was the connection? Well, they were on Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Woo! They did the theme song. <laughs> That's right. They so did. My, now, my question is, in the theme song, you see Sadat Lewis and Holly Robinson singing. Are they actually singing and En Vogue are just doing the backup then? Well, Don Lewis was actually a crossover singer-actress kind of thing, so she could potentially be singing. I don't think Holly Robinson Pete is a singer. Although she <laughs> sang, she was in the girl band and Howard the Duck, and they all sang their own music, so maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I always forget how old she is, because she doesn't really age, and then you remember she was in 21 Jump Street and all that other stuff. Exactly. Like, yeah, I forgot about Howard the Duck. How could you forget? Yet. <laughs> Easily. Yeah. <laughs> and the last one on March 31st <laughs> is a band that most people would not know. I have a funny story about a band known as Guar, and the album was known as America Must Die. So I had never, ever, ever heard of Guar until a buddy of mine from college, he was an RA. And he was planning a, an event on campus, and it was like a metal show, like a death metal show. And the headlining band in 2002, so 10 years after this album, was Guar. No way. Wow. Yeah, they played at my college. Did you go? I did go. Hope you brought your poncho. Let's put it this way. I, I was pretty far back. Okay. And there was not a lot of people there because I went to a smaller school in, in New Jersey, and most of the people that w were there had no idea who Guar was or the other, like, death metal bands. But I was like, I'm going to support my friend. I'll go. Tickets were, like, 10 bucks. I probably stayed for about three songs of their set, and I was like, I think my ears are bleeding. I need to leave. And I just <laughs> left because I was just – I could not understand what they were saying, and it was just – it was so loud. See, now, for me, in high school, 
school, I was in a metal band, and my, you know, bandmates were super into everything. And our favorite band, though, at the time was the Misfits. They had reformed, and so they had a tour, because we would go to all their shows in California. They had Guar opening for them at one point, and that is the messiest show. For people to understand Guar, Michael mentioned the noise. It's not about the noise. They come out in full monster costumes and they have victims people in these costumes that walk out on stage and like chop their heads off and then just streams of blood fly out like it's a full production usually as they're doing a stage show and there's like a whole story but it's all just like over the top grotesque like horror on stage but it's kind of a joke you know but it's at the same time you're just like I can't believe what I'm seeing and if you are within the first few rows which we were at this particular show you just get sprayed with different colored fluid. Oh. <laughs> it's like going to a Gallagher show, you know? You gotta bring your tarp. Uh, I'm having flashbacks of seeing. So I just saw, like, like heavy, heavy, like, beams of light off the stage and just, like, liquid shooting into the sky. And yep. I was, like, far enough back. They're like, oh, my goodness. People that were in the front row, they were going nuts. Like, <laughs> they were losing their minds over this. And I was like, I don't know what is going on. This is frightening and crazy and i do remember it and it was weird but it was definitely (laughs) an experience beware of guar for sure and (laughs) folks that is this month's wave riders wayback machine oh yeah well let's let's escape the horror and let's get ourselves back into the safe world of comics oh wizard it's a comfort magazine for sure so let's go through our table of contents here and we'll highlight some of the things before we get into our main discussions what is important about this wizard number seven from march 1992 is that this is the first issue where they actually release two different covers so there was a newsstand edition which michael is in possession of from our archives and who was on that cover michael the flash and then there's the direct market or direct to a comic book store cover which is exo manowar which was drawn by barry windsor smith so originally it was just going to be an exo manowar cover valiant comics was new there was quite a a bit of excitement around uh, valiant coming out and we reviewed you know exo manowar number one we got into all that but still, they didn't think that anybody knew who Exo Manowar was, rightly so. <laughs> and so they said, uh, we gotta have Bart Sears drop a Flash cover. And that we could send out to all of our convenience stores and bookstores where Wizard is on sale. So that was an interesting thing because inside, to justify, I guess, the, the two covers, you know, up till now, most issues have had a focus, right? It's like, okay, it's all about the Hulk or, you know, all about Ghost Rider, whatever it is. So this one has a two-page article, The Fastest Man Alive, A Brief History of the Flash. They actually mentioned the cancellation of the Flash TV show, which Michael and I discussed in depth on our bonus podcast about the 1990 Flash TV series. Very fun discussion. But also, on page six, is an even more brief history of Exo <laughs> which is like three paragraphs. You know what's interesting about this cover, though, I'm looking at right now? This cover is Barry Allen. And not Wally West, who was the Flash in this year because Barry was dead. And I don't know if you guys know the difference between the two costumes. No, tell me. So Barry's 
belt around his waist was a continuous lightning bolt all the way around. Where Wally's, it actually came to a point and touched in the middle. There was a little bit of a gap in between, and it's much thinner than, than Barry's belt. And so I'm like, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is a Barry Allen flash. This isn't a Wally West, which is very interesting to me, because it's the way the belt goes. You could tell that they're different. Oh, that's awesome. Wow, see? Those are the details of the true comic book nerd. I love it. Um <laughs> Speaking of details, uh, once again, as we uh, mentioned in a previous episode, they got the details on Exo Manowar wrong again, <laughs> because Wizard uh, is assuming that Eric is an alien who has to live on a, quote, primitive planet and, quote, learn to deal with us humans and learn our strange ways. Eric's true origin wasn't revealed until a few issues later into the series. We found out that, you know, he was a Visigoth, Barbarian, all this stuff. So I guess that accounts for the confusion in the that case i'm curious william for you any point of reference preference flash versus exo man war that would have been a sophie's choice for me (laughs) (laughs) never been a huge flash person i was more of an impulse person but I was not a valiant person. I mean, Exo Man of War looks like he's wearing pajamas and a boxing helmet. Like, <laughs> I just, so I would have gone with Flash. I would have gone with Flash. William, I we are kindred spirits, because I said the same thing to Adam when we talked about Exo Man of War. Right. Like, I just don't get it. The costume, the whole thing, I don't get it. I, I, I don't either. And I mean, as any quarter bin will tell you in America, no one got it because no one bought it. <laughs> yeah, well, and here's the interesting thing, though. So from a historic perspective, as it pertains to our show, this was my very first issue of Wizard Magazine that I ever bought. And I bought the Exo Man War cover. <laughs> Having never read the comic, I wouldn't read it until years later. And yet I just I saw it and it was dynamic and I picked it up and some of the stuff we're going to get into here is very nostalgic for me you know your first is your first William I know you've mentioned this on Twitter before but what was your first issue number 14 with the women of the X-Men cover well when we get there we'll give you a special shout out for sure so next up uh, in the table of contents here speaking of Valiant they have an article called Valiant Straight Shooter an interview with Jim Shooter now Jim Shooter for modern day comics readers is not a name that means very much but if you look at the history of comics he's either the smartest guy in the industry or the most unlucky Jim Shooter is a major innovator he was editor and chief at Marvel in the 80s during really what I would consider their boom period just before the 90s and he started multiple comics companies that he got kicked out of or that eventually failed financially William what's your point of reference for Jim Shooter I feel I feel like he is one of the pioneers of failing upwards <laughs> like he just like you said in terms of like he's a major innovator but nothing really panned out but people just kept giving him chances like he just he was never unemployed which was really impressive but I never liked his independent stuff. I didn't follow him to any of his companies, but I really respect his time at Marvel and what he did there because there was a lot of, like, innovative stuff going on there at the time even though like i hear he wasn't necessarily the easiest person to work with but he's never wanted for a job i can say that 
Yeah, well, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because there's people who are, like, super loyal to Jim Shooter, and then there's those people who absolutely hate him. He's, oh, like, yeah. a complete polarizing figure in the industry. And yet, yeah, I mean, he just, he seemed to always have something new. But when you talk about the Marvel days, I mean, he was in charge. He was the one who came up and wrote Marvel Superhero Secret Wars. I mean, you know, this, like, very iconic moment. And he was the one that was really getting all the new ideas, like, oh, let's have Star Comics, where we have so many licenses comics, including the new universe, which didn't work out so well. He was the prototypical Dan DiDio, who was the co-publisher of DC, who was just recently let go like two weeks ago. He'd been in charge of DC for 18 years, but he was also just as polarizing a shooter, and I wouldn't be surprised if we hear he's starting his own company in the next few months, you know? It's funny you say that. I'll cover both questions, Adam's and yours, but Dan is making comic-con appearances privately and promoting his own independent stuff Hmm. he's doing a show in london soon or something i was reading a couple of things because i follow him on instagram and i think you're right i think he's going to go out and either buy a company that's kind of you know lower in the polls kind of like a a boom or something like that or he's going to start his own thing and bring his own people in i could see him doing that for sure going back to jim shooter so for me i remember him from his marvel stuff and i didn't know of valiant comics i knew when they when they came back in the in the late 2000s or so but i I didn't know of it then so i knew of him mostly from his marvel days well and and that's interesting so when he left marvel he eventually got hooked up with this group that was wanting to produce comics for licensors right so he was out there producing you know wwf comics and he was producing nintendo comics and they were actually doing really well in terms of sales he has a quote he says when you think about it as long as we're working on all these mass market projects we really have about three times the distribution of marvel shooter argues we have the same newsstand distribution 25 to 30,000 outlets the same direct market distribution about 4,000 outlets and we have 60,000 mass market outlets they don't have we really have a chance probably more than they do to change this industry so again that's what he's always about right he's like we're gonna do something new we're gonna innovate we're gonna change it the thing i find most interesting is how extensive this article is because it really it's like eight pages long he just didn't stop talking I guess. <laughs> we'll print it all. One of the things he says is because, you know, Valiant was actually bringing back these gold key comics characters, Solar, Turok, Magnus, and it was on a handshake deal with the owner of the company that actually had the rights to those characters. And he said that DC and Marvel had both offered to buy those characters, but because he had a relationship with the owner of this Warner Publishing, they just held off for years for Valiant. Really? That's pretty cool. That's interesting. There's also an interview with Barry Windsor Smith. What does that name invoke for you? I know the name, but I don't remember where I know it from. Well, after that interview, all I know is he seems like a real riot to work with. (laughs) But I honestly don't. He's kind of one of those people like Bart Sears, where like you've seen his stuff and he's really known for like anatomy and great art. But he he doesn't have like an extensive run on anything I ever picked up. Like, I know he's one of those names that you're supposed to, oh, Barry Windsor Smith, but I, he, yeah, he doesn't really move the needle for me. 
<laughs> right. I, I, like I knew the name too, but I was like, I, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't name a book that he or worked on. I couldn't tell you. He's a big name artist from the seventies, very big, drawing Conan the Barbarian, you know. And in the nineties, at this time, his biggest, I guess, claim to fame was he was drawing the Marvel Comics Presents Weapon X. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at the pictures right now in the, in the magazine. Interesting. In this particular interview, he's kind of snarky to the interviewer. They're asking, like, about his process. You know, how do you approach a project and things like that? He's like, well, how do you pick whether you want beef or chicken for dinner? It's what you fancy doing. That's what it is. Or, you know, how do you approach laying out a panel or something he's like what do you do first sharpening my pencils forgive me but this seems like very abc sort of stuff so he's just kind of like had it with this line of questioning you know he's just like i got no time for you kid whatever you're trying to get at then he starts talking about valiant though and he's very interested in the work he's going to be doing for valiant at this point he's just kind of talking again about the idea that you know they're going to innovate they're going to change things but i find this hilarious because he says jim called me up a couple times we got together a few times he told me some of the ideas he had i've always liked jim's plotting concept i always liked his series for marvel the star brand which was a new universe title <laughs> i like the cleanness of the idea the logic behind it he thinks it's in not dissimilar ways for me if you've got a guy who can fly that doesn't mean he'll strike a great pose when he does it or that he knows how to get to washington so i just think that was kind of funny it's like oh they connected on that they want real world application of superheroes which always seemed to be jim shooter's thing you know like the new universe their whole thing was what if superheroes existed in the real world how would that change the world how would people interact where do you guys fall on that by the way do you like real world superheroes or do you like the fantastical elements fantastical just because a lot of that stuff can't and shouldn't happen and you it gets real dangerous when you start thinking about like real world implications of it i think one glaring example of this was after 9-11 and you had all the marvel charity books like heroes and like the the famous page of dr doom crying it's just like if the marvel universe exists and 90 percent of it's in new york city then why didn't they stop 9-11 you know, like, there's certain concepts that just don't work together well. Right. So I like the fantastical aspect of, like, this is a different kind of world where these things happen and people kind of look on with awe. They're not jaded about it. They're not cynical about it. That's just kind of my take. I can go back and forth on this because my favorite graphic novel run of any book ever is Why the Last Man. And Why the Last Man is about just a guy, and he's the last living man on Earth in a world full of women. And he doesn't have any powers or anything. It's just finding a way to hit for him to survive in order to keep the human race going. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, you should find it and pick it up. I'm a big advocate of those kind of stories. You know, I love Batman, and he doesn't have any abilities and all that kind of stuff. But yes, you know, the thing about Marvel that's always kind of bothered me sometimes, where DC doesn't bother me as much because Marvel, in theory, takes place on our Earth, in our cities, in New York, in L.A., D.C., Chicago, London, whatever. And then when they connect things that happen in the real world, like 9-11 or wars that are going on and so on and so forth, it's one of those things where if you have 
a Captain America and an Iron Man and a Thor. Why would these things happen in in, in this reality with those characters? And that's like, all right, I it doesn't I don't get it. Those the Lois Lane article, you know, why the world needs a Superman, and that's one of those things you think about. Like, if our world had a Superman. With some of the things that we've seen happen over the past have happened. Next up here, we have an interview with X Factor artist Larry Stroman, and he discusses mainly his method and how he puts his books together. And I thought this was interesting that he says he draws the first and last pages because he's found that so many artists get stuck, like if they're trying to go in a linear uh, storytelling fashion. So he's like, if I've already got it done, I'm just filling in the in between, and it's it's all ready to go. But Larry Stroman, is that a name that rings bell? Not a fan. <laughs> now, uh, that's terrible if you're trying to court him for the show. But no, like... I he's he's important because he was on X Factor when the lineup changed to the they became the government agency and it became like the Havoc Polaris Strong Guy team instead of the original X Men. So mm-hmm. I remember it from that, but I ultimately his style was just so abstract. It was almost like Sam Keith art to me. And ah. I just it's not pretty. But it's very 90s, so I could get how he was kind of like a hit. But, yeah, I I found that interview interesting because I don't know how he would draw for today in terms of – with the writing for the trade model, you don't have the end until six issues later. You know, (laughs) like his – process is very much for like a done in one or a two part story model but what do you do when you have six issues and you're still drawing the first page and the last page you've got a <laughs> lot of rope to hang yourself with between those when you talk about like you know what would he be doing in the modern day they actually ask him they're like to close this out where do you see yourself in five years where will Larry Strowman be in 1997 he's like I have no idea <laughs> where would Larry Strowman <laughs> like to be in 1997 i don't know (laughs) hopefully by that time i'll have done my own comics and been able to work with other writers whose work i admire i just hope to continue to be a comics artist and better than i am now so i think it'll be interesting i say when we get to 1997 will there be any mention of larry stroman will he be in the top artist lists well we'll have to wait and see i actually did some research after reading that interview to Ah. see where he is now and he doesn't know. <laughs> he doesn't know where he is still. Things still haven't really t- changed for him. Like, he's had a lot of different careers in, like, architecture and as a draftsman and all this other stuff. But, like, he's not anybody who's getting called up for, like, pinups or variant covers or anything like that these days. Really? It's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, it's un- unfortunate, but it's interesting. Well, there's a really good Bleeding Cool article about it, if you trust that site. I know it's like the TMZ of comics, but (laughs) he talks about, like, it was an article from 2019 about, like, some jobs he had turned down because of just, like, his morals. And he was just saying that, like, there are other ways to put food on his table instead of taking jobs that would, like, break promises he'd made to his mom and stuff like that. Wow. Okay. A man uh, of morals. He's... 
Stand it up for him. A real hero in today's comic industry. Strowman. <laughs> Man of ideals. Next up, there is a retrospective on Cerebus by Dave Sim. Now, what's interesting, when you talk about creator-owned comics, which Wizard has not really focused on up to this point too heavily, it's been Marvel and DC, Marvel and DC in a big way. But Cerebus was a wholly creator-owned title, which, speaking of Barry Windsor Smith, started as a parody of Conan the Barbarian in 1977, and then it, like, morphed into this epic tale of political and religious intrigue and put all these philosophical overtones in it. And it was planned for 300 issues, and in 1992, it had reached the halfway point, so they were doing lots of, like, anniversary stuff and reprints and things like that. Curious now for you guys, Dave Sim. Cerebus. Did you guys ever find yourselves digging into this black and white comic? Wah, wah, wah. No. <laughs> no. Especially back then, you know, as you know, it, for me, if it wasn't Marvel or DC, I didn't even know it existed until, you know, much later in life. So if you were to show me a black and white comic back then, I'd have been like, but Batman has color. Why would I want to <laughs> read this? Right, so. right. Yeah. yeah, I didn't either, especially like not at that time because I hadn't discovered comic shops and you weren't finding those in like your local Wegmans or anything. So like I, when I first got to Diamond, my file cabinet was filled with all these graphic novels that my predecessor had left behind and they were reprinting Cerebus in these like phone books. Right. But Cerebus is kind of like an artsy niche TV show where somebody tells you like, oh, it doesn't get good until season three. Like, <laughs> I don't have time for that. And Service was one of those. Like, I was always told like, oh, it gets good around phone book number four. And I'm just kind of like, no, I've got X Men to read, so I have never given it a chance. For me, it was just hard to come by. I remember seeing either ads for it or maybe one of those phone books, you know, in a comic shop here and there. So I was aware of the character because the design is very iconic. You see this pig creature and you're like, okay, he's something. But yeah, I, I never had a chance to read through it myself. Um, apparently, Dave Sim worked really closely, though, with his artist on this. Like, it was a very detail-oriented project. And this guy named Gerhard, who was doing art and helping him map out panels and they even created a scale model of the buildings and then they would say okay we're gonna place the characters here we're gonna put them here and that's you're gonna draw from that perspective the series reached its 300 issue goal in 2004 and then just kind of went on with like you know one shots and different shorter storylines but dave sim actually developed a risk condition and he couldn't draw from like 2015 on apparently that has subsided so he's kind of back but really, in the last few years, Dave Sim became a very controversial figure in comics due to kind of less than politically correct opinions on feminism and LGBTQ and all these things. He would create these covers that like kind of poked fun at all these topics of the day just to, you know, get eyes on the book. But apparently the insides of the comics were just kind of his standard stories. Like he wasn't really approaching those topics, you know, it's just kind of like, well, nobody cares about my book. 
maybe they will now. But what I find interesting too is because of his views and people are calling him a misogynist and all this stuff, there were a lot of comics creators that like called him out or he called them out. And uh, one in particular was Jeff Smith, you know, who created Bone. And he like said like, oh yeah, Jeff Smith, he's a man who's totally dominated by his wife. And Jeff Smith's like, you want to have a boxing match? I'll show you who's a man. So he was like calling him out. To me, like that just sounds like those celebrity boxing specials on Fox, you know, where you got Horshack, you know, versus Screech. Right. <laughs> Didn't Tanya Harding do one of those for a oh, while? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's funny you compare them like that, too, because to me, Bone, even though it was sold through Scholastic and is like this all-ages darling, Bone isn't much different from Cerebus to me in that they're both really long and I have no interest in reading them. That even is a good point. They're both on my shelf because, like I said, one day when I get to retirement, I'll need something to read. <laughs> <laughs> so next up is an interesting article because it's titled Break-In. And no, it has nothing to do with the movies, unfortunately. No Shabadoo, no uh, Boogaloo Shrimp in here. Instead, we have a guy named Nat Gertler. It's about a, a career in comics. And what I find interesting, th- these types of people always crack me up, because Nat Gertler is mostly known for writing books about the comics industry, but never had any mainstream success himself. He had one issue that he wrote of Blood Syndicate for the Milestone imprint. Anybody want to bring us up to date on what milestone was for those who don't know milestone was this i want to say experimental line that was we'll say real estate would call it urban in that (laughs) it had a lot of black and minority heroes they had a licensing deal through dc in the early 90s but they were never technically part of the dc universe even though there were crossovers like worlds collide and eventually static shock well static who then got the animated series static shock is probably the most well-known hero but there were others like hardware and icon and rocket and things like that where it was mildly successful for about two years and there have been rumors over the past 25 years that it's coming back it's the chinese democracy of <laughs> comics of like there you oh, go wow milestones coming back but it just has never happened like static shock will sometimes be in Teen Titans, but apparently they can't work out a deal. And it seems like the main mastermind who like linked DC to Milestone was Dwayne McDuffie, who sadly passed away a few years ago. So there's no real like relationship between DC and the remaining founders at this time. Yeah, well, I I actually just saw some icon cosplay on Twitter this week. You know, he was like the Superman of the Milestone universe. One, One of the last runs that uh, McDuffie did on Justice League, he brought in that whole team with Icon and all of his people into the Justice League, and they had a crossover event of some sort. I, I remember reading it. I have it somewhere, one of my 16 boxes or so that I counted over the weekend. But yeah, it was a cool thing, and it, it's again, one of those characters, like you said, they pop in every once in a while, but you never see them again. They go away, and they they can't get a, you know, a sure footing on them, unfortunately. So, Nat Gertler, like I said, he wrote one issue of a title for Milestone, but in his article, basically he's like, yeah, you gotta be good at writing or drawing, duh. 
Then you have to have examples of your work to show publishers, double duh. And finally, barely anybody gets to work in comic parentheses, including me. So get used to rejection. And it's funny because his bio at the end of the article says, Nat Gertler first broke into the comics field three years ago and has written for half a dozen different publishers. Yet it doesn't name any of them. In the body of the article, he's like, as I'm writing this article, I just got a call from a publisher who's canceling a line of comics that I've been working on. <laughs> <laughs> instantly my income is cut in half tough field <laughs> wow which i just find hilarious i mean i i guess he's kind of like scott adams you know he's like this guy who writes about comic books but he himself is not like a super acclaimed creator in any way but anyway so yeah if you were interested back then this was one of the things that i actually think that wizard was very helpful with is it gave you an insight on some level into the industry and that comes in later issues much more say when they start like giving you drawing lessons and, and other things Next up is Amazing Future Artists, the Wizard Cover Contest winners. There was a blank Wizard cover included in issue four, and they were asking the readers to submit their own cover designs. What would you put on a cover of Wizard, uh, which actually would continue to be a fun feature going forward in addition to the magic words, letters, envelope art? Like, because apparently they were just getting so many submissions over the years, like this just became a regular thing. I'm curious, I did send you guys the scans, and I know you guys have been looking through the issues. What did you think about some of the art here? What, what were some of your favorites? So... I honestly think the best ones of this particular submission, number one, I guess it's it's in black and white or it's not full, it's only penciled is the rogue i think the rogue one with the wizard in it is amazing the next one would be no, my number two is the electro one which is really really terrific and then my third favorite was she hulk in this particular stack of stuff anybody else have thoughts on this I agree. Like, those are my favorites, too. It's such a spectrum in that they're either really good or really, like, wow, there wasn't a lot this month. <laughs> so, like, I totally agree on those three because I look at, like, this Hulk one. Sorry, Dwight, but <laughs> I, I don't know how that made it. <laughs> There's actually one which I don't understand because on the page opposite the actual feature of Amazing Future Artists, there's another... Another submission that says first class cover by Tony Corso, and it's a Predator cover. And he's like, the Predator is holding up the wizard cape, you know, or cloak, but it's like, it's super dark and it doesn't say wizard. It's like somebody just submitted a piece of artwork. Here you go. I didn't use your template, but you get the idea. And there's a skull behind it that almost looks like either like Skeletor or Red Skull. If you look at it like... Yeah. Very closely. Yeah, it's very dark, and I didn't figure out what it was because I'm sitting here in the dark looking at it. Yeah, like, I passed over it. I thought it was an ad for yeah. a Predator comic. So it is, it is it is a good piece of art. It just didn't seem like it fit with the contest. And, and most of all, what stands out to me is just the Liefeld feet on the She-Hulk cover. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, you're like, oh, side of the times. There it is, right there. <laughs> all right, Michael. Well, I think it's time we jump into... Heroes in Motion. And 
And this month's Heroes in Motion covers an X-Men movie in development with Coralco to be produced by James Cameron, the script for which Wolverine and the X-Men, written by Gary Goldman in June of 1991, but was rejected due to the fact that it barely uses any existing characters or stories from the comics outside of character names and sometimes not even that. It's so weird. Like, I, I mean, why would they even bother writing it? There's like nine million mutant X-Men characters and not to have many of them or tie in any of their stories or even have their characters. That's kind of strange. I could see why it would be rejected. I mean, it seems like it's sort of based on the Pride of the X-Men pilot because it does say that Kitty Pride is like the audience entering the world of the X-Men, right? It's through her eyes. Yeah. So she is part of the story there, but it's just weird, right? Because, like, Magneto is called Prince? Yeah. And, and he's leading some type of, I don't know, like, like religious group? It's a very strange situation. It just says, he has a, you know, a quote, ultra-strong black female second-in-command called Atalanta, who, I mean, it's, like, kind of obvious. It's like, okay, so it's going to be Grace Jones from Code of the Destroyer? I just feel like that's who they were thinking of when they wrote that because i don't know of any character in the comics that that is an analog to. i've never not, not none that i could think of and i i knew a lot of x-men characters back then even today that has ever even been referenced like that so i don't even know and then another character was jason weingard aka mastermind is kicked out of the x-men for trying to mind control gene gray into having sex with him they visit Warren Worthington III, but he had his wings surgically removed and lives his life as a normal human. You know, it's weird that that's even there. Um, the only cool part is this Prince-slash-Magneto character kills Wolverine by caving in his adamantium skeleton, and at the end of the movie, he rises from the grave because his mutant healing factor uh, resurrects him, which I thought that's kind of interesting. It's a cool concept, and it's similar to how Magneto kind of, like, rips the adamantium out of Wolverine in the Mm -hmm. comics, you know? That's kind of interesting. It also features Wizard's first proto-casting call when Arnold Schwarzenegger is suggested for Colossus, which I could see at the time because there was nobody really that big back then other than, like, Dolph Lundgren, but he wasn't even that big and he also could not act. (laughs) Then there was a model named Paulina, who I I don't know who that is, but I liked her look when I saw the picture, and they wanted her for Psylocke, which is kind of cool. Who's not in the script, though? Like, they, they don't mention Psylocke anywhere in this in this write-up. I At was all. Like, oh, okay, yeah. well. Here is the one that I really... I did a head scratch for, and I had to look at it like six or seven times because I was like, really? That, that's what they're thinking? They were looking at Robert De Niro, a la the Cape Fear look that he had, to play Wolverine. And also, even though Bob Haskins was rumored as possibly playing Wolverine, which was also, though he's short and stocky, <laughs> a horrible pick for Wolverine. And I know a lot of people complain sometimes about, like a real traditionalist of X-Men complained about Hugh Jackman as Wolverine because he's too tall. But if you look at it now, could you ever see anybody other than Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine? 
Well, maybe Henry Cavill. We're about to find out. Yeah, I that's heard the about rumor. that. I, I, if that's the case, that's very interesting to me. But but I, I have to tell you, like this was the moment where I was reading this magazine and I was like, oh, they know what they're talking about. Wow, can you imagine? Like all I could ever see in my brain if there was going to be an X Men movie was Schwarzenegger as Colossus. I'm like, yes, of course, and De Niro as Wolverine because I didn't know Robert De Niro from anything else as a kid at this point. And seeing that picture, I was like, yeah. Yeah, that'd be perfect. He just grows his sideburns out a little, you know, and then he'd be ready to go. And he just seems so dangerous. And so in my mind, it was always going to be Robert De Niro as Wolverine. And then this weird guy comes on the screen in 2000, and I'm like, Hugh who? Like, <laughs> what am I looking at here, this pretty boy? But yeah, so I mean, this was all that mattered to me with this magazine when I bought it back in the day, is I would just read this over and over and over again. And when the, I remember when the rumors started for the actual movie coming out, and I was just like, wow, this has nothing to do with what I read about Wizard back in the day. Like, I thought they had been developing this script for all those years. <laughs> Glad they did not take it that far. But I'm curious, William, what were your thoughts as you kind of got a look at what their plans were at that point? I was just interested. Their choice for Psylocke is kind of weird to me because um, Paulina was Paulina Poroskova, who was married to Rick Ocasek from The Cars. And... Yeah, she was in all their music videos. Right. Right. And this isn't blind British Psylocke before the Siege Perilous. This is like Asian Ninja Psylocke. So I'm just curious to know what direction they would have gone with that character. Even though, like you said, she's not even in the script they mentioned. But like <laughs> from this article, that's what jumped out at me. Because I remembered over the years, people always said Schwarzenegger for Colossus. You know, like that just got ingrained in us that like, of course, it's going to be Schwarzenegger because there was no one else in the public eye who was just like muscly you know like we didn't have fabio yet or anything like that <laughs> he wasn't a credible actor and i've heard the de niro thing and i mean if you watch cape fear you can you can see that you can see it and even bob hoskins even though he'd be like a better puck i could see him as wolverine but we got so many X-Men casting calls from Wizard over the years, mm -hmm. and they eventually get it right, because I mean, like, the Patrick Stewart thing, right. like, that got locked in from there, and it actually came true, you know? But this early pass at it didn't do much for me. Yeah, just that way off base, I think it was just still in that weird vein of Hollywood saying, well, it's like, well, you get the idea, but you just write your own movie. You, you just, whatever you want to see, and then you kind of plop some characters in there from a book or whatever the licenses right but speaking of x-men and all things marvel let's jump into robin todd's hype machine buckle up folks This is exciting, actually. So in this issue, there is an ad mentioned previously, this Todd McFarlane VHS tape where he was talking all about the secrets and illusions of the comic book industry. But that was part of this whole series of McFarlane and Liefeld and Stan Lee. And there's this one in particular that was where they three of them get together to create a character just live, you know, live to tape. So it's called, uh, you know, Stan Lee 
Lee, Rob Liefeld, and Todd McFarlane create Overkill from Starver Home Video. And it's interesting is Overkill is a character who would go on to appear in Spawn comics and even get an action figure from Todd Toys. So I just thought it was interesting that they actually had it here. This is where it was created. And all throughout the video, they're joking about who's going to have the rights to this character. You know? And they're all, well, you better watch out. I'll sue you if you put it in your book. And then Todd did do that. This is on YouTube, by the way. You can go look this up and watch it. It's pretty fascinating. It's just like a little 20 minute video. And uh, at one point where they're discussing all the different uh, styles that they're going to add into the character, Stan's like, he's asking Rob, he's like, so uh, you're going to put some shoulder pads on this character? A Liefeld character without shoulder pads is practically naked. <laughs> <laughs> so even then, he already had that rep, right? It's like, oh, we know where you're going. Just do it, Rob. <laughs> but what's interesting, too, is that there were other... Uh, videos in this series called Comic Book Greats featuring Rob and Todd, like I said, but McFarland's tape in particular actually features Spawn on the cover. There was an ad for that tape uh, in an earlier issue of Wizard, but in the letter section in Magic Words here in Wizard in this issue, this guy writes in and the first thing he says is, Dear Wizard, I'd like to congratulate you on one of the finest comic book magazines on the market today. And now I have a few questions. One, on the cover of the video, the comic book greats number one with Todd McFarlane, I was wondering if that is a new character or if it was just a personal project. And who he's referring to is Spawn being on the cover of that tape, not knowing that in just a few months that character would be appearing in his own comic and become one of the biggest characters of the 90s. So I just thought that was fascinating that Todd was so just blatant in throwing that character out there when it wasn't being published, when there wasn't anything going on with Spawn. And he's like, well, it's the character I created years ago, and here it is. What do you guys think about that concept of, like, you're working for Marvel, and then, uh, but by the way, I got all this other stuff going on on the side. I don't know if I had the right perspective on it because I know it from today and I could say, oh, you know, Scott Snyder has Undiscovered Country right now, which is his pet project. And there's a bunch of other writers that have their own side projects outside of DC or Marvel. And it's just Mm -hmm. common practice nowadays. I I think it's actually good because of the fact that it lets the writers in particular just kind of do their own thing. It's outside of a continuity and they can, you know, have a little fun with a character. It's part of the reason why DC started doing the black label is with letting people, letting the writers and artists kind of go wild and let them do things that were things that would be not as accepted in continuity does that answer your question no, I, I think so. It is a different perspective today from then, because like obviously that's why the person's asking that question, right? They're like, wait, is this a new character he's introducing at Marvel, or is it a character that he's going to be working on? And the whole thing is, Image is bubbling under the surface. It's ready to break out, but there's been no official announcement of those seven founders leaving Marvel yet. There's no rumors. There's nothing. So within this issue, Rob gets five mentions, Todd gets five mentions, so they're Todd yet in our running total you know last episode rob just eked out uh, a win over todd so he's got in our uh, cumulative total 25 and todd's at 24 so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the coming issues because in this issue there is a notice about the release of young blood number one from malibu comics created by rob liefeld and uh, it's you know it's in the picks for the wizard's hat and here's what it says what the hey 
Holy moly, that's Rob Liefeld, the hot creator of Marvel's X-Force, and he just created something totally new and sizzling hot. In a world where the big celebrities get the big money with the big managers, Youngblood is a group of superheroes like the world has never seen, Malibu Comics is gearing up to create its own universe, and Youngblood is the debut of it all, and who better to bring it to us than Liefeld? From reading X-Force, these new guys have got to be good. Each issue of this three-part miniseries has two full-color Youngblood trading cards. Wow, a lot more cool stuff like this and Marvel and DC Comics are going to have some major competition. I just think that's hilarious, too, because, yeah, it was being put out at this point by Malibu. They're distributing it, essentially, but we know that Malibu's not going to have their own actual comic book line until the Ultraverse a few years later. So, like, kind of a little bit of misunderstanding. Like, what is going on here? Rob's releasing this new book, but what does it have to do with all that? So, there's a little tease of it, but I think that means, Michael, it's going to take us into... The Punisher's Price Guide. Young Blood number one. For this particular book, uh, just a reminder that um, the Punisher's Price Guide are categorized as a fire starter, which means it went up significantly in value, or a fire storm, which means that it stayed roughly the same, or worst case scenario, a burnout, which means it has plummeted in price. So in March of 1992, the price guide listed Youngblood number one at its cover price of $2.50. And by February of of 93 it was valued at nine dollars and it peaked in february of 94 at a whopping twelve dollars as of february 2020 a non-graded copy of the book sold for buckle up guys and hold on to your butts because a dollar 44 and a dollar 31 and one dollar on ebay so sorry rob young blood number one is a burnout now tell me this william because you were talking about you know the quarter bids earlier have you ever come across a copy of young blood number one in a discount bin have i Uh, most Rob series are in quarter bins because he doesn't finish anything. So there's no, there's no driving force to keep them around because you'll never have a full run of anything. So I have certainly found young blood in those bins. <laughs> well, I think it's time then to talk about what's going on inside those unfinished series. Let's jump into Robin's reading rainbow. Right, so yes, Young Blood number one. 
This is interesting, uh, just in the history of the development of this book, because, you know, Rob initially advertised a book before all of this called Executioners in 1991. I don't know how many of you have seen the documentary The Image Revolution, but Rob tells this story about how he got a call from Marvel's editor-in-chief, which I believe was Tom DeFalco at the time, that was totally mad at him for trying to publish his own comic. He's like, well, I just want to do my own thing. He's like, you don't do this. <laughs> you know? It's like, you got another team book that looks like your X-Force book and it has X in the title? That's not going to happen. So, you know, Rob, as we know, eventually left Marvel with the rest of the Image founders over disagreements on royalties and recognition that was due for their significant contribution to Marvel Comics' increased sales. So he already had that desire. Um, and Rob, you know, was the first to get this new book published under the Image banner, being advertised and distributed through Malibu Comics like we talked about. Though what's weird is there is actually another totally different looking Youngblood team advertised that it was going to debut in Megaton Comics like a few years before this. So I don't know where, like, where he was. He was just trying to hitch his wagon to anybody that would put Youngblood out there. But this was a three-issue miniseries in addition to an issue zero that was released. And most of the image books when they came out, like even like the Savage Dragon, I believe, and Shadowhawk, like they were contained stories. They weren't meant to be ongoing from the get-go. So I'm curious also for you in understanding Youngblood, guys, had you been reading X-Force? Had you been following Rob in any capacity when this announcement had come around? No, definitely not. No, back then I wasn't reading x-force i was you know i was reading like uncanny x-men spider-man stuff like that but i I never gotten into x-force because it was again one of those things where they were just pumping out so many different x-books and different things i was like i I know the one that you know jim lee is drawing and and that area and that's a battle i kind of stuck with i didn't really go into x-force back then later in life i love x-force now more than you know other stories but back then no how about you william did you go from executioner song to x-force number one I did not. I I was really the same like as Michael. I was just into Uncanny and Amazing Spider-Man, like the, the main books. I didn't have enough disposable income for X-Force. And just the, the looks of those books, even though they're very 90s and extreme, like they just rubbed me the wrong way even then. Oh. So I just didn't gravitate towards image. Like, it just, it just didn't do it for me. This week, as I was prepping for the show, Chris Sheehan, he's at Ace Comics on Twitter. He's got his Chris's on Infinite Earths blog. He's got the Cosmic Treadmill podcast great fount of knowledge on 90s comic books in particular. He actually was my neighbor when I lived down in Phoenix, and I never knew. And I wish I could have connected with him back then, and we just could have hung out. But he had a write-up this week about Youngblood number 1, where he reminded us of a comic book resources post about how Liefeld originally pitched a revamped Team Titans, not Teen Titans, but Team Titans that DC had passed on. And so he just kept the character design in his portfolio because like Shaft was supposed to be Speedy Green Arrow sidekick Vogue was Harlequin who I believe was at one point thought to be the Joker's daughter and then that wasn't the case and then Die Hard was a Star Labs robot and all these things so he just kind of kept that around and he actually he got a lot of flack for his Youngblood characters being derivative 
And there was a great quote in Chris's uh, uh, posting there because he, he copied all these pages from these different comic book magazines where Liefeld was being interviewed. And so he says this, you know, all that started with the executioners. Everybody yelled, X-Force, X-Force. And I've already commented that I could see one character who might have warranted that kind of response. In Youngblood, though, I have to think, oh, so this guy is red hair and this other guy is red hair, so they look alike? Shatterstar is an alien with a tattoo on his face. He has these big swords. He's got a cape, shoulder pads. He's from Long Shots Dimensions. Shaft's primary weapon is a bow, and he has red hair, so he's the same guy. Give me a break. Chapel has a skull on his face. He's black, and he's got these big guns. So he's Cable? Can I not draw guys with guns anymore? And then the interviewers, I could, of course, die hard as Deadpool. Yeah, where do they get this? So let's get this straight. I can't draw guys with red hair, because they're obviously Shatterstar clothes. Guys with guns? I've got to stay away from them, whether they're black, white, or yellow. They're Cable clones? I can't have guys with full facial masks on. They're Deadpool. Then we've got Bedrock, a guy made of stone, and he's Warpath? He's the same as an Apache warrior, just because of these shoulder pads? Vogue has white-black makeup on her face, so that makes her Domino. Come on! (laughs) So Rob was not having it. But what do you guys think about these character designs? What do you guys think about these stories? Oh, I have been dying to talk about this. Oh, <laughs> Right out the gate, I, I hate to say this because Rob Liefeld is a nice guy. He's a famous, you know, he's a big deal in comics, but he's clearly a one-trick pony because they are the exact same thing. The exact <laughs> same thing. It was so frustrating. I was, it was, oh, it drove me crazy. I'm like, they're the exact same characters. It, without question so i wanted to talk to you about this because like you know i couldn't find an issue of this so i had to read it on my phone which i hate reading comics digitally first of all it it takes the the joy out of the holding the book in my hand so that was even more annoying to begin with so it started me off in a bad mood but reading through this thing first of all he introduces so many characters so fast in this issue that i could not keep up to who is actually in the book and where i was just jumping from and what was happening and like there's characters getting their eyes you know messed up like and and becoming like a cyclops character like it was so much like x-men that i i I put the book down three or four times on my phone and had to like go play a mindless game of solitaire just to like calm my brain down i was getting so (laughs) aggravated with this book so that's my rant for now i feel like rob is like you said, he's a one-trick pony. All of his biggest creations are derivative of something, whether it's Deadpool or Youngblood. And it's just sort of like, I mean, Hollywood does it all the time. They take something that's like meant to be one thing and they repurpose it into another thing. You know how like Independence Day was kind of Stargate 2 and things like that. But in this situation, like, his stuff is like he doesn't even just give us the courtesy of like putting a mustache on the person you know (laughs) like it's usually a blatant translation of like this is a character that exists but i'm now gonna call it mine so i just don't think of him as like a great innovator or creator because the origins of his creations are nebulous 
to refute your points here, he also mentions here, because this is a criticism he, you know, has had his whole career. And Rive Liefeld in that same interview says here, he's like, let me get this across as well. I'm not sitting here saying I'm a grade A creator. The guys I look up to are the Frank Millers, the Walt Simonsons, the George Perez's, the John Burns. I don't put my creations up against theirs. I'm just saying that during the time that I did things, my creations were well received. Two years from now, people may look back at Cable and think he's the dumbest creation ever only time will tell how someone's work stands up i mean he's like i'm not great i'm just doing what i'm doing and people seem to really like it so what's interesting about this whole series like you said michael is this book this original book is a flip book so you read it digitally but it, it basically has two covers and two sides so there's a story involving the away team and the story involving the home team as they call it and so you've already got that going Going on and it's two different missions one is kind of just stateside mission and one is a story taking place over in the middle east and they are definitely trying to relate it to what was going on in the news in the media of the day and i think that's often a mistake because it dates your book terribly mm-hmm. uh, yep. when you try to go back to it but like as far as like the action and all of that what did you guys think was it did it bring you in just art wise even if there was too much going on no <laughs> i couldn't get into it i i tried really hard and so to play point counterpoint i also decided to read the first couple of issues of harbinger which came out around the same time which is also a similar thing they have similar abilities to x-men characters but the thing about harbinger that was a lot better than this was they didn't throw 50 characters at you in the first issue and the art is more spaced out it's more even it's much more adult looking and it felt more like the style of drawn in the kind of style like Watchmen in the way the panels are set up and you had time to learn who the characters were before you dove into these action sequences of characters you don't know anything about and you don't care anything about and and so that's where it really bummed me out because I wanted this book to be interesting and different but it just fell flat and felt generic and it didn't captivate me at all. Well and I'll say that even in the next issue because I have all three issues of the miniseries in the letter section somebody writes in and says the idea of having two teams is both interesting and unique but one of the negatives though was the dual covers and two starting points although it quickly became obvious there were two teams that comprise young blood it was confusing and hard to find a place to start a text piece describing this may have made it easier to follow so even the people who were just like we love your art you're great but you're confusing us so they were on the same page as you now the one thing i want to bring up here is that I've admitted also to not being a Liefeld fan in terms of his comics output, but he is a hometown boy for me, just like no doubt. He's from Orange County, specifically Anaheim, California, and he gets a bad rap, you know, and if you look at his story, the guy ultimately is just a comic book-loving kid who got lucky and managed to parlay that into huge success. I mean, he literally influenced an entire decade of art in comics with his unique artistic style, whether or not it holds up, but I think, like, you can't deny how many people wanted 
wanted to draw like him. How many DC and Marvel books literally were aping his style? They were not aping the McFarlane style. They were aping the Liefeld style. And so I, I think like he's very influential in that way. But at the same time, yeah, he's just like spitting out every character design he had. He's like, we got to have them all. And the Wikipedia page for Youngblood says, Liefeld conceded disappointment with the first four issues of Youngblood, calling the first issue a disaster. He explained that production problems as well as a subpar scripting by his friend and collaborator Hank Canals, whose employment Liefeld later terminated, resulted in work that was lower in quality than that which Liefeld produced when Fabian Nicieza scripted his plots on X-Force, and that reprints of those four issues would be rescripted. So speaking of those reprints... On July 12, 2007, it was announced that Liefeld would return to Image Comics to publish a collected, definitive version of Maximum Youngblood with a new ending written by Joe Casey and illustrated by Liefeld himself. So I picked up a copy of his new version, basically his remastered version of Youngblood number one. And it is fascinating because literally all the dialogue is rewritten. The art is the same, but the dialogue is different. It was just kind of a lot of stuff happening in that first issue and then when it comes back around now you've got all these characters that are speaking slightly differently but there's a more linear fashion to the story because instead of a flip book, they just integrated the away team's story. They just drop a few pages from that in between, you know, so you're going back and forth as you're reading through the, the comic. It's also interesting because at the time that the first printing was released, we were having the Gulf War and all that stuff. And so the bad guy in this is Hassan Hussein, you know, thinly veiled Saddam Hussein. So when he redoes the the book in 2010 because now we're kind of in the fallout of the war in Afghanistan and so they revamp all the news articles and all the stuff that are included throughout the story and it's funny how history was kind of repeating itself in a way so even though it's being updated it's like well but we just came out of another skirmish in the Middle East so it was kind of the same deal basically the improvement in Joe Casey's scripting is that the characters no longer sound like the thing or Wolverine where all of them are just tough guys posturing for each other. Come on, get out of the way. I'll take care of them. Got pretty much everybody just having their own one-liners and saying how cool they are was the original way it was scripted. So either way, I don't know that it's strong because Liefeld has like rebooted Youngblood multiple times. Like he keeps trying to bring it back. He's like, remember this thing you loved? And people really were huge into it. I mean, people were like lining up around the block to get autographed copies of this book. But as we said, as a result, there wasn't much value in it. But I thought that Youngblood was a bigger book. I mean, that's the way it always seemed to be. But I will tell you this, it doesn't make the top 10 in the next issue of Wizard. There's just literally a small mention that the book was released. And then it takes two months until issue 10 for there to be a big to-do about Youngblood or Image. It's the cover story. It's all of that. So look for episode 10. But like, it just seemed like it was released out of nowhere with not a lot of fanfare. I, like, it did you guys have friends that were super into Youngblood even? None that I could think of. That he, I mean, I, I honestly didn't realize until reading this and going through this that it was only four issues. I thought it was a longer series. I didn't know that it was just kind of like a mini. Well, it, it, it became an ongoing. Right, that's what I thought. But initially, yeah. Okay, yeah, but no, like, you know, the only person that I knew back then that was reading comics was Joe, and he definitely wasn't reading this, for sure. Because he, he doesn't like Liefeld. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but William, did you have very many people that you were sharing the hobby with, or was it kind of a solo mission for you? 
No, like, there were a lot of kids in my class who were into comics. It's funny looking back, because looking at all the things they got wrong, like, his name's pronounced Gambi, because he's French. And I'm like, (laughs) huh? (laughs) Like, things like that. So, I know, I had friends who liked Liefeld, because his stuff was extreme and 90s, but nobody was like, oh, Youngblood is my favorite book. They just liked what Liefeld brought to the table. But I found it interesting that that's now two cases of a Liefeld creation being punched up by Joe Casey. It's like with Deadpool. Liefeld gets the credit for creating Deadpool. Joe Casey's the one who actually gave him his personality. He's like, that's my guy. That's my guy. (laughs) I'll do the art. You do the stories. You make them interesting. Now, I think we've we've talked enough about Youngblood. Michael, let's flip through Gambit's deck of cards. So in this issue of Gambit's Deck of Cards, we have a really cool thing that I didn't really know much of the history of to looking at this, is the history of holograms in trading cards. So somewhere in 1989, when Upper Deck released team hologram cards, they were a failure with no collector value at all. In 1990, Upper Deck did the same. They issued like six different holograms with their hockey players. Wayne Gretzky was one. So this is 92. So it says in the beginning of the paragraph, over the last two years, they have been a very large interest in holograms. Every company issues them in a different way, but a very few have found the correct way because they were always the ones that, that the baseball card store pulled out of the packs and had them behind glass, and they were always jacked up in price. But what were your guys' thoughts on the hologram trend? Yeah, William, I'm, I'm curious. Did, did your comic book fandom bleed over into collecting the cards based on the comics? Oh, totally. I had... The DC Cosmic cards, I got into the Marvel cards in Series 3, but then I went back to get Series 1 and 2. I was into the X-Men cards, and of course, the Holy Grails were the holograms. I have loved holograms since the 80s, and I just, I, I love all holograms. So, I was a sucker for that, and I have both found holograms in packs, but I've also been the fool who paid, like, the $15 or whatever <laughs> for it behind the glass. Um, I love a good hologram. Well, and it's interesting in the price guide here. I mean, the, the, the first series of Marvel cards, if you had the full set of holograms, they were worth 50 bucks. And, and the, uh, the series two weren't far behind. I mean, it was a big deal. And that's what this article says is that Impel are the ones that seem to have done it right. Upper deck kept blowing it. They introduced the idea seemingly of putting holograms in but they kept just making them not scarce enough and they're saying impel did it right by putting one to three holograms per box to create that value with some scarcity but then they blew it because then they started producing these like mickey mouse cards and gi joe cards and they made the holograms too hard to find so that nobody wanted 
to collect those sets because they're like, well, I'm never going to get a full set. They're too hard to find. So, I mean, and that that's what it was like for me, too, is like that was if you could figure out some way to trade your friend for a hologram, it was going to be a big trade. Like you had to come up with something good. <laughs> you know, like back in the day, just this, this shiny card was worth so much to us. I just think that's so interesting, though, to learn that history, because I would have thought that it started with the Marvel cards. I had no idea that Upper Deck, outside of their little Upper Deck insignia that would go on the back of their cards, were really the people who kicked it off, that it was in sports. I don't remember seeing all that. I mean, I know I've seen the behind the, this blanket, but I never really owned one that was a baseball card, because it was not the same look as like seeing, you know, Bo Jackson or Don Mattingly as a card. I didn't really get it in baseball cards i got i understood it more in in like comic book cards to have the hologram because it it reflected the covers that they were doing holograms for at the time and all that kind of stuff yeah and speaking of which you know we talked about the image revolution documentary that is available for free on the tubi app it's also on amazon prime but additionally on the tubi app there is an awesome documentary if you're into just the whole concept of collecting and scarcity sports cards really were i feel like the prototype for what the comic book industry became in the 90s there's a documentary called jack of all trades and it is fascinating so i really recommend that people seek that out because it'll if you have that collector's mentality you'll realize how you're being manipulated <laughs> by these publishers like they really have it figured out but speaking of manipulating possibly a little piece of plastic i'm ready to open up the toy chest it's time for azrael's action figure fury So, William, I know that this in particular is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. Oh, yeah. So I am very curious to know about your, your action figure collecting philosophy as a kid and how that has developed over the years. Because uh, a lot of your posts, you're telling us what's coming out and what they're doing right, what they're not doing right. Are you a completist or do you just kind of collect the characters you like? How do you... Well, when I was a kid, I wanted everything because, of course, all kids, you get the catalogs and you circle everything. You're like, Mom, Dad, I want this and that. And, of course, you don't get everything, but I wanted as much as I could get. And I'm sort of like a late bloomer. Like, I'm, I'm very strange in that when I was very young like preschool age i didn't watch cartoons i watched like murder she wrote in 60 minutes <laughs> Did we grow stuff? up in the same house so so like a lot of 80s stuff means nothing to me like transformers he-man those franchises they they mean nothing to me it was like the 90s when stuff started mattering to me so like gi joe i'm that that rare person who likes the deke stuff more than the sunbow stuff i get exactly that's my gi joe and like i was into of course like once 1990 hit i was into everything everyone else was into from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to Power Rangers to the real Ghostbusters to Batman the Animated Series. Like, I've, I've still got all those toys. Um, 
Lately, I'm more into the quote unquote adult collector lines, which sounds so sketchy, but like <laughs> universe classics from Mattel and well, that's over now, but Marvel Legends from Hasbro. So with Marvel Legends, I tried to pace myself where I started out saying I'm only going to get the ultimate Marvel characters and the movie characters. And then it was like, okay, I'll also get the X. <laughs> and then it was like, I'll also get Spider-Man. And then it turned into, well, the Avengers are kind of cool now. I'll get them too. And I'd say about three years ago, I was a completist, which was terrible because those things are $20 a piece. It was almost like going to rehab. Like I had to recondition myself. Like you don't have to have all of these things. They don't bring you joy. You don't know who Paladin is. So watch <laughs> you see his figure. And I've weaned myself off of it to now it's just the characters I care about. But I'm sitting in my basement right now. Like I'm trying to put my displays together. But it's like I need to go to Ikea and get shelves. Like I'm really into like displaying them and that right. kind of thing. So toys are a big deal to me. Ikea detox cases. I got about six of them. Oh, yeah. I used to have four, and then we moved, and, you know, Ikea doesn't move well, so no. now I need to get more, <laughs> but I I am all in on that case. I have quite a few. What's interesting about this particular article is that they are talking about mail-away action figures. So, you know, Brian Cunningham, is, who's our author here, he's writing about, you know, how Boba Fett was basically like the first mail-away figure for G.I. Joe Cobra Commander, which I, that always baffled me. I was like, your main villain was a mail-away figure that was not going to be, you know, just in your main line. And then the recent supersize Punisher from the Marvel superheroes line, because they had released a supersize Hulk, and they had released a supersized Venom, and and then this Punisher apparently was one you could mail away for, which I do not remember that offer being on the back of those cards. I, I don't remember them mentioning anything about that. He, he said it just looked terrible. And I, I sent you guys a picture. I don't know if you guys looked at that, but he's got like a giant head and he's got kind of a little smirk on his face. He doesn't come with a gun. And so it's just like a very strange release to, to put out this. He doesn't even have the vinyl jacket that they eventually released the Punisher with i i don't know if you guys ever had a mail away figure that was of interest to you like the one i still want even though I, i'm not a huge superpowers collector is the clark kent because i love alter ego toys like my peter parker figure from the spider-man animated series line that's one of my favorites i just love the idea of like a person as an action figure <laughs> and it's just like here he is you know it's like yes he also has superpowers but you wouldn't know it you know, you right know, right you know who my mail away figure was you're gonna laugh bob the joker's goon oh yeah <laughs> i had a mail away for that one you got a, you got a little, little like pamphlet when you went to the movie of batman 89 i was like okay i picked off the items that i want i said mom i want these things and get me the goon guy too <laughs> <laughs> bob the goon i would say my most memorable mail away figure is is well there's two um there was the spirit of obi-wan kenobi figure which came from lay's potato chips right. and i'm not even a star wars person but i love translucent figures so <laughs> so like you just mailed in like a proof of purchase from lay's potato chips and you got this like 
clear blue Obi-Wan who didn't even have articulation, but he still was cool for 1992. And then the Joe Colton figure who was like the original G.I. Joe for like the 15th anniversary of Real American Hero. So, so this wasn't a Bruce Willis figure from when no, he played no. Joe? <laughs> no, they hadn't even gotten that far. And there was there were two you could get, either like the three and three quarter Joe Colton figure, which would like mesh with like the rest of your figures, or you could get the 12 inch because that was kind of like the vintage line. So I got the three and three quarter one, and that was really cool to actually have like G.I. Joe to fight alongside his team because at that point, like the comics weren't really talking about how there was like a Joe Colton, but when that figure came out and the anniversary came around, then he actually like came to be a part of the comics and on the team. And I just thought that was really cool that like, Hey, there's actually a Joe Colton. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't even know that. Yeah. His origin is apparently JFK. The last order he signed off on before he went to Dallas was to form the GI joe team and he was like um that was before they like went off to nam and all that other stuff but i thought that was an interesting way i always feel bad for the kennedy family that like that whole event spawns all this pop culture stuff oh so much (laughs) every time travel every every alternate universe it's all revolving around jfk's assassination yeah Uh, And I'll just say for me, like, my actual mail-away figure that I coveted and needed so badly was not actually a figure, but it was related to an action figure line, which was Kenner's The Shadow figure based on the 1994 film. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, anybody that knows me knows I love The Shadow. And they had this offer. There was this fluorescent orange sticker that they put on the front of the figures with two proofs of purchase that you could get a free Shadow Agent hologram ring, which is basically, you know, like, a lenticular ring and i cut out the upcs i had it all ready to go and i never mailed them in so for years and years i was just my biggest regret i was like why did i do it because i had most of the figures i you know and then i finally had a complete set and i didn't have the ring until like two years ago i finally found it on ebay because they weren't popping up for the longest time and then i finally got one you know still sealed in the package so i have my complete the shadow set now (laughs) One quick thing. I I do collect figures nowadays, but I get so annoyed when they release a set of, you know, five or six characters and and with it is a -a Build-A-Figure because there's always one or two characters that I just don't want. I'm like, why do they have to make me buy with this one crummy character in order to complete the whole Build-A thing? It drove me crazy all the time. It, it bums me out. Those are the figures you give to your kids, then for some reason that becomes their favorite character and they collect all the comic appearances. <laughs> good point. It's a very good point. And so, do we want to dive into our next segment? Let's finish it off. Alright, so we're going to dive into Riddle Me This... going to ask questions to William, and I was looking at this, and this is probably the first issue where I knew all the answers right off the (laughs) bat, 
And it's either A, they're very easy, or B, this was just like the wheelhouse of my nerdiness that I needed to know. So the first question, are you ready for this, William? Yep. Okay. Wolverine, Shadow Cat, and Cannonball are all blank. Mutants. I think that's right. Fits perfectly, yes. Otherwise, it would be, my other guess would have been X-Force, but it's one letter short. So it mutants does fit. The next one is Blank and Dragons. Dungeons. That's what I went with also. The next one is Spider-Man's first appearance is in Amazing what? Fantasy 15. That's right. This is probably the hardest one on the list. Punisher's Pal. Microchip? Oh, nice job. That's what I got, too. That is the right answer. Blank on Infinite Earths. Hmm. That's (laughs) a crisis. There you go. Spirit of Vengeance. It is a two-word answer. Ghost Rider. That is correct. Next one is a head scratcher. It took me a minute. It took me a minute, but then I figured it out. America, Adam, and Marvel are all what? Captains. With an S, that's right. Right on to it. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. And the last one, his empire fell in Daredevil number 300. I'd say the kingpin. That is the correct answer. Good job. Oh, congratulations, William. You're going to go home with a copy of the Punisher War Journal, number six and seven, autographed by Jim Lee with a wizard seal of authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but seriously, yeah, William, it has been wonderful having you with us. I think it's just so much fun. I mean, I know we could go so many different directions. So we'll look forward to having you back when we get into Gen 13. I think you have already secured your spot. Absolutely, because cause I'll just sit back there and listen, because I know about, you know, a microscopic amount of Gen 13, and I want to learn a lot from you guys about it. So when we get to that point, that'll be awesome. And if you want to be on any time sooner than that, let us know. We'd love to have you again before that, too. Thank you. This is so much fun. I play along listening in the car. I actually listen on Wednesdays on the way to the comic shop to sort of psych myself up, like going to get comics, going to get comics. So this has been great. And thank you so much. And just please have me back whenever. (laughs) We will. For sure. And as we close out here, a special shout out to our man in the chair, a real behind the scenes hero, our producer, Jeremy. We're seven episodes in. We haven't mentioned him yet he helped us create our logo he gets the episodes posted every wizards wednesday so thank you jeremy you rock if you all want to follow him on twitter at front office jer if you're into those baseball cards we were talking about he's a huge sports fan as well uh don't forget you can find us in between episodes on twitter at wizards comics or instagram at wizards underscore comics even go old school and send us an email at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com if you have some suggestions for the show. We want to hear it. Uh, also, big thanks to Mickey and Jason at the Retro Network for giving Wizards a home. And if you enjoy this show, if you're listening to it every other week on your way to the comic shop, then we invite you to leave the Retro Network a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to the show. And with that, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.
This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.